What are the critical economic and political forces shaping the current crisis in Ukraine? What will be the repercussions of the EU Association Agreement and how will closer economic ties with the EU impact the people of Ukraine? How does the political and economic history of Russia and the USSR explain the country's behavior toward Ukraine and its stance on the world stage? Why ultimately did the Soviet Union collapse and what role did that collapse play in the development of regional nationalities? And what role should Canada play in promoting the welfare of the people caught in the midst of these critical historical events? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we hear from three Manitoba-based academics, Professor Ray Silvius, Professor Alan Freeman, and Professor Radhika Desai on the Ukraine question. On today's program, Perspectives on the Crisis in Ukraine, a public forum. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 5th, 2014. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and Campus Community Radio Station, CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major stories shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. Our show is also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The group purportedly responsible for discovering the Stephen Sotloff beheading video is an intelligence asset specializing in war on terror propaganda. Quote, the video was first obtained by... SITE Intelligence Group, that's Search for International Terrorist Entities, also known as Site Intel Group, a relatively under-the-radar yet apparently very powerful non-profit research body that monitors jihadist movements, reports USA Today. One of Site's founders, Rita Katz, is a government insider with close connections to former terrorism czar Richard Clark and his staff in the White House, as well as investigators in the Department of Justice, Department of the Treasury, and the Department of Homeland Security, according to SourceWatch. In 2007, Katz and Sight allegedly discovered and sent to the Bush administration an unreleased Osama bin Laden video. Previous Osama bin Laden videos were released and exploited for their propaganda value by Intel Center, a private contractor working for intelligence agencies and based in Virginia. That's from the article, Stephen Sotloff video found by group connected to Homeland Security and responsible for releasing fake Osama bin Laden video by Kurt Nimmo, posted September 3rd, originally published at InfoWars. During an appearance on Fox News, General Thomas McKinnerney acknowledged that the United States helped build ISIS as a result of the group obtaining weapons from the Benghazi consulate in Libya, which was attacked by jihadists in September 2012. 
Asked what he thought of the idea of arming so-called moderate Syrian rebels after FSA militants kidnapped UN peacekeepers in the Golan Heights, McInerney said the policy had been a failure. Quote, We backed, I believe in some cases, some of the wrong people and not in the right part of the Free Syrian Army, and that's a little confusing to people, so I've always maintained that we were backing the wrong types, unquote. In addition to ISIS containing Obtaining weapons from Benghazi, many members of the group were also trained by the United States at a secret base in Jordan in 2012. Aaron Klein was told by Jordanian officials that, quote, dozens of future ISIS members were trained at the time as part of covert aid to the insurgents targeting the regime of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad in Syria, unquote. That's from the article, U.S. General, We Helped Build ISIS. Islamic State Obtained Weapons from U.S. Consulate in Benghazi, Libya, by Paul Joseph Watson, posted September 3rd, originally appearing at InfoWars. While touting itself as a non-profit and non-partisan, the New America Foundation is in fact a well-heeled think tank and advocacy organization backed by powerful globalist figures and entities, including Bill Gates, Google CEO Eric Schmidt, the Ford Foundation, the U.S. Department of State, and the U.S. Agency for International Development. Barfi works within NAF's counterterrorism strategy initiative headed up by CNN national security analyst Peter Bergen. The author of Manhunt, the 10-year search for bin Laden from 9-11 to Abbottabad, Bergen promotes the official myth and state propaganda line concerning bin Laden's apparent decade-long existence following his reported death in 2001. Along these lines, Bergen plays along with the corporate media's widely held notion that ISIS is a spontaneous phenomenon that receives little, if any, Western support. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Barfi's role as spokesperson of the Sotloff family vis-a-vis -vis his links to New America, Brookings, Atlantic Media, and CNN are left entirely unexamined by the same corporate media outlets vigorously promoting the supposed Foley and Sotloff beheadings as genuine. That's from the article, Stephen Sotloff video was released by Intelligence Group linked to Homeland Security and Washington think tanks by James F. Tracy, posted September 4th. The OSCE observer mission is deployed at the Russian checkpoints of Gukovo and Donetsk at the request of Russia's government. The decision was taken in a consensus agreement by all 57 OSCE participating states, many of which are represented at the NATO summit in Wales. NATO backed up Obama's statements with fake satellite images, 28 August 2014, that allegedly, quote, show Russian combat forces engaged in military operations inside the sovereign territory of Ukraine, unquote. These statements are refuted by a detailed report of the OSCE monitoring mission stationed at the Russia-Ukraine border. The NATO reports, including its satellite photos, were based on fake evidence. That is from the article, Obama is a liar, fake NATO evidence, OSCE confirms that no Russian troops, no tanks, have crossed the Russia-Ukraine border. By Michelle Chosodovsky, posted September 4th. You don't need to be a neo-Foucault 
hooked on Orwellian panopticon practices to admire the hyper-democratic ring of steel crossing average roads, parks, and even ringing castle walls to protect dozens of NATO heads of state and ministers, 10,000 supporting characters, and 2,000 journalists from the real world in Newport, Wales, and beyond. NATO's summit in Wales also provides outgoing Secretary General Anders Fog of War Rasmussen the chance to display his full attack dog repertoire, with Lithuanian President Dalia Griboskaiti predictably spinning that Russia is at war with Europe, and British Prime Minister David Cameron evoking, what else, Munich 1938, Chamberlain appeasing Hitler, Fog of War has had all the ammo he needs to sell his Einsatzgruppen. Even with all this Mars attacks hysteria, NATO in thesis won't discuss Ukraine in depth in Wales or an imminent R2P, that's the responsibility to protect Ukraine from the mixed, remixed evil empire, copyright Ronnie Reagan. But there will be military consultations and a bit of cash shelled out to Kiev military who are having their bankrupt collective behind solemnly kicked by the Federalist Separatist forces in eastern Ukraine as much as NATO had theirs kicked by a bunch of Pashtuns with Kalishnikovs in Afghanistan. That's from the article NATO Attacks by Pepe Escobar, posted September 3rd, originally appearing in Asia Times. A second beheading has more effect if followed by more news of vanishing aircraft a bit later. So why would USG, after two weeks, have come out with news of the vanishing aircraft only immediately subsequent to an accidental release of the second beheading video, unless it was trying to maximize propaganda value regarding potential events it must have at least some degree of control over, since it almost certainly knows where those aircraft are. So here's what may well happen next. Obama's response so far has been tepid. A couple hundred troops to Iraq and the declaration that ISIS is manageable by the international community. That is not going to be enough for people who want much more aggressive action against Russia and in the Middle East. Therefore, in coming days, we'll have another, more intense round of chicken. France has seen the writing on the wall and chickened out already in view of even more vanishing aircraft. The next scene probably happens tomorrow. It could be something like a group of beheadings. That's from the article, Vanishing Airliners, ISIS, and 9-11, Timing is Crucial in Politics, by Jason Kistner, posted September 4th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. On this, the season premiere of the Global Research News Hour, we will be hearing speeches from a forum held June 18th at the Ukrainian Labor Temple in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. 
The forum was part of the Ukrainian Labor Temple Speaker Series, an initiative of the Winnipeg Council of the AUUC, which is devoted to exploring issues of local, national, and international significance. This forum, which was held after the Ukraine national elections and before the fighting broke out in Donetsk in eastern Ukraine as the Ukrainian government sought to gain control. The first speaker is Ray Silvius, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Winnipeg. He attempted to broaden the debate by addressing specifically the economic forces affecting Ukraine and the violent impacts the EU association agreement will have on the populace. So let's return uh, quickly to this Europe-Russia dualism. One of the key propagators of this notion, uh, a Europhile uh, unapologetic, is current Prime Minister, former head of the Central Bank of Ukraine, Arseniy Yatsenyuk. And in 2012, he uttered the quote that you see up on the slide, which reads as follows. Ukraine should become a part of greater Europe. First of all, because this means standards and values, a high level of education, medical treatment, pensions, employment, freedoms, new technology, and progress. This is precisely the notion that I want to make a little bit more problematic than Yatsenyuk is willing to offer. And I think one of the ways in which we do that, and one of the ways that I've tried to do that when following the crisis, is to look for alternative sources on the matter. And one of the best ones I've found in the last several months is from a guy named Dennis. A Dennis who is a member of the Autonomous Workers Union in Kiev, who contributed to a, uh, an article that appeared online on a website called Roar back in February when Yanukovych was being pursued but uh, not yet officially deposed and when the Crimean crisis had not yet reached its boiling point. In February of this year, Dennis said the following. You should understand that from the very beginning of the Maidan protests, people had a very peculiar understanding of Europe. They pictured a very utopian ideal, society without corruption, with high wages, social security, rule of law, honest politicians, smiling faces, clean streets, etc., and called it EU. And Dennis continues. And when one tried to tell them that actual EU, European Union, has nothing to do with this pretty picture, that people there actually burn EU flags and protest against austerity, etc., they retorted, so you would better live in Russia then. And so here's what I think Dennis's point was in the larger context of that article and in his larger critique of the facile EU-Russia divide. The real danger is economics. And the real danger, whether it pertains to uh, Russia or the European Union, is economics. And Dennis goes further in his article, suggesting that for most Ukrainians, the reign of Viktor Yanukovych was dangerous uh, precisely because he pursued austerity with great vigor upon becoming president in 2010. It was not because he was some obliging puppet of Putin and Russia. And so Dennis talks about some of Yanukovych's failed initiatives, which were eventually pushed back by enraged Ukrainian citizens. 
those being the uh, notion to raise the pension age for women, to pass a new flexible labor code, which is code for making it easier to fire people, and introducing a natural gas tariff that would render the commodity virtually unaffordable for millions of Ukrainian homes. The broader point of this lesson is that this is precisely some of the material that is being smuggled into contemporary agreements between Ukraine and the International Monetary Fund and legislation that's being passed in the Ukrainian parliament. So if we're to take some lessons from Dennis and his sage words back in February to politicize the current conjuncture, what should we do? We should politicize contemporary Ukrainian politics beyond the Russia-EU divide. And I would suggest we politicize it beyond the, even the Ukraine-Russian divide to examine with a deep and critical eye the precise content of agreements being undertaken by the Ukrainian government in June 2014. This is to suggest that in the midst of rather sensationalized physical violence in eastern Ukraine, we don't lose sight of the profound economic violence that is being wrought on millions upon millions of Ukrainian citizens. And in the current conjuncture, this means to investigate how the same austerity forces that pushed Yanukovych in 2010 are now becoming embedded in the Ukrainian central government in what I refer to as the poroshenko yatsenyuk chapter. So what is the poroshenko yatsenyuk chapter? If we are to divine what this might mean in the coming months, I would suggest that it means the following. It means a deeply divided Ukraine between East and the rest on a number of levels, not the least of which being a physical and military suppression of political activity in the East of the country. It means invariably, and it has already meant, closer association between Ukraine and Europe on the one hand and the International Monetary Fund on the other. It will mean, and it has already meant, austerity. And it will mean, and it has already meant, enhanced political rule for oligarchs. So let's turn briefly just to sketch out what that might look like. Did anybody catch the news at the end of March of this year where the Ukrainian government under Prime Minister Yatsenyuk signed the association agreement with the European Union? Did anybody catch that in the news? A few astute observers? It wasn't announced terribly much. But this agreement was undertaken on March 21st between uh, Prime Minister Yatsenyuk and the EU heads of government and state. At the time, they agreed to the political provisions of the EU-Ukraine Association Agreement. And admittedly, there's some good stuff in there, right? There's some good stuff in there with respects to protection of people's personhood, with respects to protection of minority rights. Some of the stuff that might actually signal progress um, to a Canadian public. But like everything that's happening in Ukraine right now, the devil is in the details. And the particular details of this agreement have yet to be delivered yet. And that's because the particular details of this agreement are most immediately found in the deep and comprehensive free trade agreement. One of the many economic provisions of the partnership 
agreement, or of the association agreement rather, which have yet to come into effect, but which Ukrainian uh, leaders and EU officials have signaled a commitment to signing by the end of this month. What this means, folks, is that there will be a considerable number of what we refer to in the business as compliance costs for Ukrainian businesses and industry to meet EU standards. This will, if I were to prognosticate, um, decimate vast swaths of the Ukrainian economy and render them simply uncompetitive. It will lead to tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of layoffs, potentially. And it will radically transform the Ukrainian economy, um, rendering it unrecognizable to us at present. So that's what's forthcoming. And why I'm speculating is because the precise um, uh, details aren't available on this just yet. The other point worth mentioning here is that during such processes, uh, the likes of Yatsenyuk and Poroshenko now as president are suggesting that the European Union drift does not at all necessitate IMF engagement. This has proven to be patently false. And we can see that um, following quickly on the heels of the association agreement was a so-called standby agreement between Ukraine and the International Monetary Fund, which on the surface, it's necessary or some sort of fiscal injection into the state is necessary. The IMF will provide $17 billion of loans to Ukraine. But once again, the devil is in the details. One third, precisely one third of this amount is meant to service Ukraine's foreign debt with Western creditors. And it was given by the IMF only on the condition that the Ukrainian parliament adopted a series of austerity measures at the parliamentary level, which they did in March 2014, with Yatsenyuk taking a lead role. Again, the details aren't terribly easy to find on this agreement. If we refer to the IMF itself, and in particular in the person of Reza Maghadam, who is the director of their European department, we see the somewhat understated notion that the program targets a moderate structural fiscal adjustment. What might that mean? It means, again, in the IMF's somewhat subdued and technocratic language, something we call expenditure restraints, or the following. Unaffordable wage and pension increases, public employment reduction through attrition, and the rationalization of social assistance spending through better targeting and means testing. What this means, folks, is austerity that will be borne on the backs of Ukraine's government workers, on the backs of its pensioners, and on the backs of its workers in the immediate and medium-term future. So what I suggest is that we look a little bit further into such agreements and ask ourselves to what extent does the contemporary Ukrainian government's fiscal solvency uh, come to be borne on the backs of such individuals who are disproportionately paying the cost for Ukraine's entrance into Europe. How am I doing for time? 12 minutes? Tons of time. So happy to pick up on any of that in discussion section. But I'd like to take a bit of a turn right now to look at some recent events and pose the question, what are the oligarchs, what are the oligarchs doing now?
Did anybody happen to come across this photo online in the last little while? It made the rounds in Canada. It's from uh, Canada.com, and it is accompanied by uh, a rather pleasant-sounding story called Locals Force Pro-Russian Insurgents to Retreat from City in Eastern Ukraine. So the basic story is this. In Mariupol, which is the second largest city in the deeply contested region of Donetsk, billionaire Renat Akhmatov, who is reportedly Ukraine's wealthiest individual and who has vast holdings across a number of industries, organized his steelworkers to cooperate with local police and security forces to help suppress the insurgency, the so-called insurgency in eastern Ukraine. And the story was written um, in a very much positive hue in the sense that this demonstrated the activation of the Ukrainian working class in the Eastern context. But it gets a little trickier. And it gets a little trickier because Akhmatov is a tricky character. And it gets a little trickier because Akhmatov had been suspiciously coy since the Maidan uprisings in November and December of last year about tilting his hand towards Europe or towards Russia. The point that I would like to make now is that he now appears to be taking on considerable responsibility in the eastern regions for providing his own security within his firms and um, within his properties. And this, to me, signals a dangerous denigration of Ukrainian political authority to what are, for all intents and purposes, feudal lords. And this is part of a broader trend in which large economic actors are utilizing a, a veritable paramilitary force, if not their own workers, to engage in violent conflicts in areas of interest. Here's how it unfolded in Donetsk with Akhmatov. In May 25th, there was a demonstration against the central government and against the Ukrainian presidential election. The demonstration then moved towards Akhmatov's residence after, he, uh, after news had leaked that he had ordered thousands of his own workers to march in daily rallies against the demonstration. Akhmatov's workers were reportedly given time off work in order to do this, and they were threatened with reprisals if they refused. This all came in the context of protesters demanding the nationalization of Akhmatov's vast assets. Again, the point that we need to be cognizant of, I think, moving forward is the dangerous trend of the de continued denigration of Ukrainian public authority in the hands of powerful private economic actors. Which leads to my conclusion by way of some questions and some suggestions. We were asked in giving our presentations here today to think about what we can do here. And I thought long and hard about this. And my initial inclination with respects to the Canadian government, at least, is to stay out of the mix if staying in the mix means the naked pursuit of their own self-interest. So there's a question mark after the stay out because I don't think that we are all here tonight under the assumption that we should be dispassionate and divorced from ongoing political and economic concerns in Ukraine. 
So I, I, I tried to think of some better ideas. And here's what I came up with. I think we should do our best to continue to scrutinize the economic agreements that the Ukrainian government is entering into and passing and to publicize this as best we can within a Canadian context. I would suggest that we encourage our own governments and any sort of international individuals we may know to encourage a broader civil society engagement in Ukraine that includes Ukraine's workers and popular organizations who have thus far been marginalized, at least in terms of much of the public debate. And finally, I think we need to demand that any sort of repercussions for a tenable political solution to the crisis in Ukraine not be disproportionately borne by Ukrainian workers, pensioners, and government workers. Thank you. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. This week on the Global Research News Hour, we're listening to speeches from a June 18th forum in Winnipeg on perspectives on the crisis in Ukraine. The second speaker was Professor Alan Freeman. Dr. Freeman is an economist, a visiting professor at the London Metropolitan University, now living in Winnipeg, and joint editor of the Future of Capitalism book series. In his talk, Dr. Freeman primarily addressed the economic, political, and cultural background of Russia and how those details were shaping events in the region. I've looked carefully at the figures and I've looked at a number of sources and I have to conclude that the basic judgment, and this includes Western and Russian experts, that is put is not propaganda. Putin genuinely reduced poverty by raising the living standards of the poorest two-thirds of the population. All the figures point to that. But at the same time, and this is the paradox of Russian society, if you can see the graph that shows what happened to the top quintile of the Russian population, the rich got massively richer. Three or four times, Richie, you see today this, this horrible scene of, you know, uh, Muscovites are kings and queens of bling. So you pee people down armed hummers around the streets of Moscow um, instead of investing their wealth in the development of the country. And that's the other paradox of Russia, that although a great deal has been done for poverty in terms of development of the economy, it has lagged behind. It was actually in 1990, uh, so twice its share of GDP, world GDP, was about three times that of China. It is now one-third that of China. And you'll see in the graphs that I've got there how drastically Russia fell behind. The low point was perhaps 1999 when the per capita income of the, tip of the average Russian citizen was 1,453 US dollars. That's $5 a day. That's just above the UN millennium standard which everybody's supposed to be pulled out of. This is in a proud, advanced country which only 20 years earlier, the average income was $5,000, only one quarter of the average income of a US citizen. So the effect of what was called shock therapy was to plunge Russia into the third world. 
And this is imprinted on the brain of most Russians. So what you now have is a very peculiar situation. Putin has not solved the problems of the Russian economy. So you have a, a major debate. And the debate goes like this. The Western experts and the neoliberals, who still have the whip hand in the way that the Russian economy is run, the other peculiarity of the Russian economy is it combines this strong state, this alliance with the oligarchs, and a completely neoliberal model. Open capital markets. People just come in, put their money in, take their oil money out and, and run away again or spend it on ostentatious consumption. Um, it's why Russia massively went into decline in the 2008 crisis compared with China, which just went up with scarcely a blip. So you have all this, this in, incredible contradiction in terms of the way that society is, is, is run. What are the unsolved problems of the, of the Russian economy? Well, first of all, it's a West-facing economy in a bi-oceanic continental landmass. Its natural markets are the peoples of to the south, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan. Its natural market is actually to the east, China. The logical economic combination of two countries at approximately similar levels of development with terrific complementarities is between uh, Russia and China. Actually, the obvious logical step would be for India to join that bloc. But that, I think, is a long way off. That's what the West is terrified of. That's what the West is... will do anything to prevent that alliance because with the rise of the BRICS and the decline of the United States, which Radical will be talking about, such an alliance would be unstoppable. So the first problem is that potential is not being exploited. The second thing is that it is a multi-ethnic state. And this is one of these things that many people don't understand. It's portrayed by the West as an empire. But from the outset, many nationalities, many religions, many ethnicities were all combined in a deeply redistributive Soviet Union. The Soviet Union basically worked to iron out the regional disparities. These have all massively increased, particularly with the concentration of wealth in Russia. And again, the neoliberal model comes to the fore. I had this wonderful story last time we were there, um, that there was a meeting with the regions with Finland to discuss European perspectives. And the Russian advisor, neoliberal, proudly explained, he said, well, we have a competitive system the, uh, the best and the most effective and the most efficient regions get all the money. But the Finnish representatives said, what do you do with the losers? And that's what's happening to Russia now. This neoliberal pseudo-competitive model is actually driving the regional leaderships to distraction. And they're, in fact, driving much of the opposition to the Moscow and Petrograd-based uh, regimes. So that's the second problem. Demands for social equality come to the fore when people start struggling for existence, when people start struggling for their lives, because then people say, well, if we're going to get better off, we should all get better off, not just the men, you know, not just the Russians, not just the Christians, but everybody. Then social equality comes to the fore. It hasn't come to the fore because of the absence of struggle. People rely on the state. The second thing is the absolute collapse of all forms of social support. I vigorously remember an image which has stuck with me from 1989. There was a person on the end of every tube train in the Moscow underground called Yeshovia, I think that's the right name, the help. And if there was something wrong, that person would come and assist you. And I just remember a blind, disabled old woman 
getting off the train, unable to find our way along the platform, just shouting, where is the help? Where has it gone? It disappeared. All the support vanished all at once in three years. And people want it back. People have nostalgia, as they call it in, the, in, in East Germany. They long for anything that will give them that social protection. But they identify that with authority. So that you have mixed up together a desire for the return to Stalin, a worship of the Stalin era, the return of the Soviet Union, support for state authority in all forms, this constant refrain of referring to Russian historical tradition and cultural values, huge growth of the church, which is very rapacious, building, building churches everywhere, and they have very loud bells, so you can't go anywhere without the damn bells ringing all the time. Don't want to offend anybody's sensibilities, but I think that one of the reasons God doesn't intervene is probably death with all the bells that get rung. Um, and family, because that's the only protection you've got. So this deep-rooted social conservatism based on the passivity of the population and the collapse of social provision. The national question, now I'm, I'm hoping we've got a picture of the Eurasian map because all you need to see is that map and you understand Eurasian. Eurasianism is the form that Russian nationalism is taking. It's a call to reconstitute the economic unity of the Soviet Union. And it's damned obvious when you look at where Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan are. There's a perfectly natural economic unity between Russia and those countries. The contradiction is this. That cannot be an ethnic nationalism. And you get two currents vying in Russia. One is this, I think, what I call genuine nationalism that seeks to defend the borders of an economically viable area against constant attempts to dismember it and maintain a society of approximate equality between and equal rights between all those different populations of that. And the ethnic nationalism is based on the ever-present fact that the Russians are a majority even within the largest possible union you could conceive of unless China enters in, which would change the whole equation, of course. Um, so there's a constant tendency for people to say it's about Russian ethnic superiority. Ethnic nationalism will not work because you cannot run a multinational country on the basis of one nationality dominating. It does not work. And every attempt to make it work comes to ruin, shipwrecks. And that's why, you know, Zhirinovsky's posturing clown, he's also a neoliberal, which, you know, doesn't exactly help in the current situation in Russia to be a, a neoliberal fascist, um, is going nowhere. The second reason that it's going nowhere is that you actually, the, the question of national integrity is the most important one, the, the defence of the borders. And you cannot defend that even militarily without including all the populations of Russia. I mean, my, my second deep impression I take, my first visit to Russia in 1987, is there was the victory parade, and it was a big victory parade in those days, and um, all the people looking out from the turrets of the tank were Asiatic. Perfectly obvious. There's, you know, a general involvement in the armed forces of all the peoples of Russia. And you cannot actually have even a strong military force if you don't involve the, high, the whole population. There's two things that you cannot do with ethnic nationalism, but most of all, you cannot develop the economy. You cannot develop the economy on the basis of Zhirinovsky, neoliberalism combined with a strong state. That's just the worst continuation of what you have now. So, finally then, a sort of orientation. and Maybe we can get to the very last slide, which says a coherent foreign policy, which comes back to what Ray was saying. Um, first of all, 
in the slide before, though you don't need to show it, I said, don't look at the people, look at the policies. Ask which policies are going to solve the problems of a siege economy under constant threat of dismemberment, a fundamentally poor economy, continental multinational society, the biggest in the world, an overwhelmingly working population. One of the things I wanted to spend more time on is there's not actually any really developed capitalist class in Russia. It simply hasn't got one. I don't mean by that that it needs one. I mean, it hasn't got one. So if you try and develop the economy using the capitalist class, all you've got to count on is a few, a few blingers and speculators and a couple of oligarchs, and that's it. You can't actually develop the economy. You have to involve the working class to develop the economy, given the state that it's at now, even if you wanted to do otherwise. Those are the problems. Now, what should Canadian policy be towards that? First of all, I think no intervention is absolutely fundamental. If anything drives that message home, it's what's now happening in Iraq. If you intervene, you mess up. Because what's the memory of these people, first of all, is that they have to fight not only their own capitalists, they have to fight the imperialist capitalists as well. They have a double battle to fight. At least leave them only one battle to fight, and then they might clear out uh, the autarchs and the oligarchs and so on. These people only stay in power because they say, we are your only defence against the threat of foreign intervention. You're provoking the very forces that the intervention was supposed to alleviate if you intervene. Secondly, I think, go back to systematic neutrality. I like the United Nations Declaration. I like the principle of in, uh, national self-determination, the fundamental principle of relations between nations. But that applies to everybody, not just the people whose self-determination you happen to fancy supporting, because it allows you to knock some rather dangerous threat on the head and dismember it. it. It means genuine national integrity. In the case of Russia, it means at least the integrity of the existing Russian nation, and it also means the integrity of the economic integrity of what was the former USSR. It's going to be good for us because that place will become wealthier, we'll be able to export, we'll be able to buy, if that market is allowed to develop again. I think the next thing for Canada is an Arctic power. It's not insignificant. I think we should have a demilitarised Arctic. Very important demand. Get the arms out of the Arctic. Don't have them... Just, just get them out. You know, don't put all this ring of missiles around on either side. Um, and that has to be based, of course, on environmental protection and resource sharing. I think you need bilateral trade rather than multilateral trade. Since we've got you know, specific agreements with Europe and specific agreements with America and specific agreements with Europe, what's wrong with a specific agreement with Russia or a specific agreement with, the, with, with you know, Eurasia or whatever? And that's, that's the sort of trade policy. Then respect the national integrity of the Russian state, respect and support the rights of Russian speakers. They didn't say much about that. But there are isolated groups of Russian speakers, not just that isolated, but significant groups of Russian speakers in the, La in the Baltic republics, in Ukraine, and they have rights too. They have rights to their language, and they've been barbarically treated in their history as a result of uh, certainly the Second World War and as a result of successive interventions. They have rights too, and they should be respected and recognised. Um, recognise the economic integrity of Eurasia, and finally open a dialogue. I don't claim to have all the answers. I'm just saying the problems are very complex. We won't solve them by digesting State Department propaganda or by repropagating it under the guise of scholarship. 
We'll solve it by meeting those forces, as I've been trying to do and Radhika has been trying to do, discussing with them and understanding what they've got to say and what they want and what they've got to offer. That was Dr. Alan Freeman. He was followed by Professor Radhika Desai. Dr. Desai is a political studies professor and faculty member at the University of Manitoba. She's the author of numerous articles published in prestigious journals and numerous books, including Geopolitical Economy After U.S. Hegemony, Globalization, and Empire, as well as the upcoming book, The Making of the Indian Capitalist Class. Dr. Desai addressed how and why regional nationalities prospered under the former Soviet Union and how the collapse of the USSR and communism shaped the current events in Ukraine. We are told that what's going on in Ukraine, in the tensions between the West and Russia over Ukraine, what's happening is the emergence of a new Cold War. But I would like to, uh, to, 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 to suggest to you that this is not a new Cold War. Um, and it is, in a sense, in many ways, it is the old Cold War. It's the same old Cold War. But we should remember that the old, or, or I would also argue that the old Cold War was, is not what we thought it was. It was not a contest between capitalism and communism, between liberty and the denial of liberty, as the dominant discourses would have, it, have us understand. It was most fundamentally an effort on the part of the United States to prevent the emergence of any economy that would rival its power. It was an effort to try to create and maintain a world order in which all other economies, except its own and to a limited extent that of Europe, would be complements to the industrialized American and Western economies. And by complements, what was meant is that while the West produced high-value manufactured goods, the rest of the world should continue to produce low-value agricultural goods. And if they did happen perchance by disobeying the injunctions of the Americans and the Westerners to produce something more, then they should remain at the lower rungs of the manufacturing value-added ladder. This Cold War is much older than the one that began in 1948. It was undertaken by the United Kingdom, for example, and it is in the pursuit of this enterprise that the United Kingdom, in its time, in the 19th century, acquired that empire on which the sun never set. And it is the effort of the United States to try to emulate such dominance that has characterized, that has in many ways determined a great deal of the history of the post-war period with one important proviso. The United States never succeeded in doing this. Not only has the United States failed, but since 2009, its relative weakness is more clear than ever. The United States is mired in stagnation. It has been forced to lower its state expenditure, including its military expenditure. The role of the dollar 
is diminishing around the world and this is something that it has dearly wanted to preserve. Not only has it failed in Iraq, Afghanistan, as indeed it failed in Korea, Vietnam, etc. It not only has it failed in these places, but um, it has not been able to control events in other uh, uh, locations such as Syria, Libya and so on, and today in the Ukraine. Um, in fact, its failures are uh, uh, becoming apparent much more quickly. And of course, now uh, uh, it has also been reduced, instead of using military force as it once did, it has been reduced to trying to use uh, 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 just ordinary movements, like basically financing the so-called color revolutions, whether the Orange Revolution in Ukraine or the Tulip Revolution or whatever. These uh, basically financing people to create, uh, uh, to destabilize powers that they feel are standing up to them in ways that they do not wish to be stood up to. So that's the second point, is that the U.S. is much weaker. Now, another thing that liberalism prevents us from seeing is the fact is, is, and this is very uh, uh, con deeply connected with the Ukraine, is the relation, the exact relationship between nationalism and communism. Uh, because communism has, of course, uh, historically, and I think to its great credit, um, uh, abided by or at least raised the banner of internationalism, it has been very easy for uh, anti-communist Cold War intellectuals to basically equate the Soviet Union with the suppression of nationalities. And of course, many people in the Ukraine in particular have uh, uh, pointed out that somehow they, their nationalities were, were suppressed, uh, especially that of the Ukraine. In reality, the, I, I would like to underline that um, the Soviet Union and the Marxist ideology upon which it was based was internationalist. That is to say, it understood nations quite well. It was about the relations between nations. It was not about the suppression of nations. That's the first thing. Second thing is that it actually had a profoundly interesting theory in which nations were seen to be the material products of the development of capitalism in just the way that classes were. And if we all accept that classes were important for Marxists, so were nations. And in, 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 in the way in which they understood this, um, that is why, for example, um, the Bolsheviks, uh, right from the beginning, supported uh, national self-determination um, in, you know, in, in their uh, foreign policy. Um, in the early years of the Soviet Union, indeed, the early USSR the, not only promoted nationalities, but in fact, in doing so, it also said that the Russian nationality, as the largest, should actually take a back seat. Uh, as you know, Solzhenitsyn was no communist. He was a profoundly anti-communist intellectual. And he, in, in the mid-90s, he gave an interview in which he said the following. He said, in 1919, when Lenin imposed his regime on the Ukraine, he gave her several Russian provinces to assuage her feelings. These provinces have never historically belonged to the Ukraine. I am talking about the eastern and southern territories of today's Ukraine. Then in 1954, this is something we all know, Khrushchev, with the arbitrary capriciousness of a satrap, made a gift of the Crimea to Ukraine. Um, but even he did not manage to make Ukraine a gift of Sevastopol, which remained a separate city under the jurisdiction of the USSR central government. 
This was accomplished by the American State Department, first verbally um, uh, through Alexander Popaduk in Kiev and later in a more official manner. Why does the State Department decide who should get Sevastopol? If one recalls the tactless declaration of President Bush about su supporting Ukrainian sovereignty even before the referendum on the matter, one must conclude that all this stems from a common aim, which is to use all means possible, no matter what the consequences, to weaken Russia, for reasons that some of which Alan has already uh, talked about and which we can talk about in greater detail. It is true, however, that under Stalin, especially given that some of the opposition to Stalinist policies took nationalist forms, the policy of gi giving the Russians a back seat was reversed, and this should be criticized. And I'm sure that, you know, I'm not defending everything the Soviet Union did, I'm just trying to put it in context. But it is also true that despite these reverses, it was under the Soviet Union that the basis of the various nationalities, their national cultures, their languages, the development of national literatures was laid. And that is one of, not the least reason why. When the Soviet Union met its end, it did not collapse into some kind of generalized failure as it should have, if its nationalities had indeed been obliterated. The best explanation that I have ever found of why the Soviet Union came to an end in the way that it did is actually by one uh, Professor David Kotz, uh, and it's called Revolution from Above. And his argument is that, um, that um, the Soviet Union did not come to an end because uh, of its unpopularity or economic collapse or even because of the launching of the... Second Cold War, which is another favorite explanation of many people. The Soviet Union came to an end because the very elite that ran it no longer believed in the system. Not the people, the elites. And this is very interesting as well. I, I'm not sure if Alan managed to show you the chart of inequality within the Soviet Union and how relatively equal the Soviet Union was before its collapse and how inequality has gone up since then. Because we are also often told that in the Soviet Union there was a ruling class just as there is a ruling class in capitalism. But in fact, that ruling class, such as it was, was so, in a sense, so, uh, the, the, it was not so much, it was not sufficiently better off than the rest of the population for it to consider its position worthwhile, doing all the work of running the country worthwhile. And so they basically did not wish to continue the system. Now, given, if you agree that this is why the Soviet Union collapsed, and we can discuss this further, then there is another important question, which is that the people have never really sort of voted against the Soviet system. They were, once, once the elites decided to, to bring it to an end, Gorbachev being the leader of these elites, they ended up subscribing to this silly idea, which I think Ray uh, refer, encapsulated quite well, that somehow if you end communism, you are going to become as rich and prosperous as the EU or, 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 or the Europeans and so on. And of course this did not happen. So, um, the, so, so, the, so the point I'm trying to make is that the real question before people in Ukraine, in Russia, in most of the ex-Soviet republics, is the question of how to reconfigure uh, the economy. Ray has already talked quite a bit about that, and I would just add a couple of more points. Integration into the EU is not going to make Ukraine better off. 
It is going to turn Ukraine, as it has turned many other Eastern European countries, into a dormitory for labor. Labor will go to, you know, the, the, the proverbial Polish plumber will be replaced by the equally proverbial Ukrainian plumber. People will go, they will work in various uh, Western European countries for pittance wages and they will be sent back when there is no work, etc. So they will become effectively dormitories for uh, 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 Western Europe. And all, all the EU has to offer Ukraine is a form of austerity which is probably going to be even worse than that suffered by Greece and the other peripheral countries of the EU because, the, after all, Greece has a much longer history with the EU, greater claim on its resources, etc., etc. Ukraine is not going to benefit from further integration into the EU. And what's more, and this is another fact which is not often pointed out, the Russians have been, in the past, uh, well, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Russians, and especially since the stabilization of the Soviet Union under Putin, have been massively subsidizing the Ukrainian economy. Um, in, so, uh, in, in, as I think I don't need to emphasize more, in, in the Ukraine, post-Soviet st stabilization therefore will require some kind of re-emergence of a planned economy, a developmental state and a redistributive state. I think in the Ukraine also the legacy of the ultra-right will have to be dealt with. At the moment, the ultra-right is in government and it is being supported by Western countries. It is simply irresponsible destabilization that they are engaged in, whether it is the color revolutions, the support for the Maidan protests. They, they, cannot, they, they cannot make sure that they can even get what they want, let alone provide the Ukrainians with something that they would like. Um, they, at the same, and, and also at the same time, the interests of the U.S. US and, the, and the EU are quite different because the EU is quite aware of how much it is reliant on the Soviet Union for energy. And by the way, here, the importance of the recent deal between Russia and China for, to sell Russian gas to China should not be underestimated. Basically, the Russians are saying to the Europeans, if you don't want our gas, that's fine. We've got other customers for it. Other customers that are growing much better will demand energy much better. So basically, you've got the U.S. and the EU creating a civil war situation um, in the Ukraine. Um, so uh, I'll just end, therefore, with a, a couple of points about uh, both Ray and Alan have talked about what um, Canadians should do. Canada has been one of the leading countries in the world to espouse the ideology of responsibility to protect a humanitarian intervention, promoting democracy, etc., etc. And I think we should question the manner in which this is done. If you're going to truly have an internationally democratic decision about how and when to intervene, then it should be done through the organs of the United Nations, not through some self-selected uh, international community. The U.S. and the U.K. are today the only countries in the world to maintain an extensive network of bases outside their own territories. No other country has such an extensive network, and I think we should we should underline, we should, we should reiterate the importance of national sovereignty and urge the Canadian government to take a leading role in ensuring that this situation comes to an end. Today on the Global Research News Hour, we heard perspectives on the crisis in Ukraine with speakers Dr. Ray Silvius, Alan Freeman, and Dr. Radhika Desai. 
You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.